The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Right, happy Monday, everybody. Warm welcome to Squawkbox. Karen Cho, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. President Zelensky of Ukraine lamenting the destruction of Bakhmut amid claims that Russian forces have taken the city as the Ukrainian leader takes center stage at the G7 summit. President Biden, meanwhile, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy prepared to meet at the White House after a weekend of wrangling over the debt ceiling with the U.S. leader warning Republicans must compromise. It's time for the other side to move from their extreme positions because much of what they've already proposed is simply, uh, quite frankly, unacceptable. China targets Micron with trade restrictions, claiming the U.S. chipmaker poses a serious security risk. But Washington hits back, saying the move has no basis in fact. Ryanair posts a four-year net profit of 1.4 billion euros, with the low-cost airline citing a strong recovery in traffic. But warning, its fuel bill will rise by 1 billion euros next year. We're speaking to the CFO, Neil Sorahan. That's next. And the Greek Prime Minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, claims victory in parliamentary elections, but his ruling New Democracy Party falls short of an outright overall majority with a second election expected this summer. The G7 summit closed in Hiroshima on Sunday with the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida calling for a world without nuclear weapons and a push to de-risk trade with China. It was a surprise appearance, though, by the Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, however, that stole the show, with Western allies announcing fresh sanctions and increased military assistance. His appearance came after a tour of European countries where allies reconfirmed their commitment to supporting Ukraine after Russian forces claimed to have seized the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. Martin uh, joins us with more. And Martin, um, very significant, obviously, the support from the G7, one would say probably expected. But what progress did Zelensky make with Brazil and with India, who were also in attendance in the form of uh, uh, Lula and, and, of course, Mr Modi as well? My understanding was he didn't make quite as much progress, especially with the Brazilians. Yeah, good morning, Steve. Good morning, Karen. You're right. I mean, that was part of uh, Zelensky's intentions, I think, for coming here to the G7 summit in Hiroshima in Japan, not just to meet with the G7 leaders and get their continued or further support uh, for uh, Ukraine, but also to meet with uh, leaders of non-aligned nations, as they're known, who were also invited to the summit. He did meet, yes, with uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi of uh, India. That seemed to go uh, pretty well. Uh, He also met with uh, uh, President uh, Joko Widodo of Indonesia, 
Uh, we, it is unclear, though, whether or not he sat down, managed to get a sit down with uh, uh, President Lula of uh, Brazil. So that remains to be seen. But the whole idea was to get uh, nations, these t sorts of nations, uh, which are f considered, I guess, fence sitters or in some cases enablers of Vladimir Putin, more on side with Ukraine and or uh, the G7. So, uh, you know, the BRICS themselves, you'll probably know, are going to be having their own summit uh, shortly after the G uh, G7. So we'll have to wait and see how much of that actually works, that charm offensive by uh, Vladimir Zelensky. But uh, Zelensky himself, that in-person uh, surprise last-minute visit here to the G7 really stole the show, I have to note. And, you know, notwithstanding the news of the fall of Bakhmut, which you were just talking about, uh, he should be pretty happy because uh, we had a major breakthrough here uh, in Hiroshima. And that was U.S. President Joe Biden uh, announcing not just $375 million more worth of military support in the uh, manner in the shape of uh, ammunition, uh, artillery, also high Mars rocket launchers, but also giving the go-ahead for allied countries that operate uh, U.S.-made F-16 fighter aircraft to go ahead to transfer these aircraft, or at least some of them, to Ukraine as well, setting up a training program for uh, Ukrainian pilots uh, to get them ready and uh, ready rather to, to fly these uh, jets. And we understand that uh, although training a jet fighter pilot does take time, experts, uh, we understand, think that it could, uh, these pilots could be up to speed in as uh, little as, as four months or so. So uh, there you go on, uh, on that front. Martin, excellent. Thank you very much indeed for your coverage as ever out of Hiroshima. An incredibly significant meeting, but I'm afraid to say, I think if we were looking for a breakthrough, uh, and good morning, by the way, Karen, nice well, to morning. see you. If we were looking for a breakthrough um, in terms of support from XG7, from uh, Super G7, or from other groups as well, from the likes of Brazil and India, I just don't think it was coming because we know the Indians are loving that cheap Russian energy. And we know, of course, that there is a charm offensive going on. Um, from uh, the Putin administration, from the Kremlin, to kind of keep the South on side as well. And, and my understanding is that the Lula da Silva uh, has been very welcoming to certain Russian officials at times and just kind of, you know, keeping the relationship going. But actually, the less progress made from the West and Ukraine to try and persuade the southern nations, the BRIC nations, actually, and of course South Africa, we know what's going on there as well, with concern about arms shipments and what have you, um, persuade them to get on side. Do you think there's just too many items on the agenda? I mean, China was a dominant feature, right? How do you diversify away from the factory floor to the world so that there's resilience in systems? I think it wasn't just about Ukraine, despite this headline act of Zelensky flying in. There were other topics on the table, and this is a big one as we talk about long-term security, the, the next war that could be fought, essentially. I think you're right, but look at, look at that video that the, the, the team are just showing now. What do you see there? Well, you see Fatty Biro, who doesn't represent the country, but you, you see a hell of a lot of countries that aren't in the G7 that the G7 is trying to woo, because we think the G20, and I, I've talked about this for a long time, G20 is unwieldy, it's too big, and you can't get anything done necessarily. You, you did during the great financial crisis, but that was once as well. But look, you've got the Indonesians, you've got the uh, Indians, you've got the Brazilians as well, uh, some key nations as well. So G7 Plus, I think, is the way they see their future going forward as well. Well, this is the supply chain story, isn't it? That uh, if you're going to diversify away from China, who are you going to rely on? And you've got low-cost nations across Southeast Asia that want to be players in this journey, Indonesia being one of them, Vietnam, of course, Thailand, some of the others. But uh, what you've seen, I think, out of India has been very pivotal lately. Amazon with uh, the infrastructure yep, yep. that it's building up there, Apple with a the move away from the mainland market. 
uh, you've got the diversification happening. And I think the smaller nations are also part of that conversation over the weekend because there is a push now as we talk about this reset on global relations that some of these nations don't get left behind, that you're not seeing parts of the world effectively that the Russians or the Chinese can later on come in with big checks and try and have influence over. Yeah, and those, some, very often those big checks have big debts and big loan uh, repayments. Uh, let's move on. Profits at Ryanair surged to 1.4 billion euros for the full year, boosted by a strong recovery in traffic as well as successful fuel hedging. The low-cost airline says traffic rose 74% with fares up 10% compared to pre-COVID times. The uh, carrier also flagged market share gains across multiple European countries. Uh, Neil Sorohan is the CFO of Ryanair and joins us. L- lovely to see you. Steve, great look, to hear um, just talk us through how you see the numbers, because, I mean, look, it, it's very clear that you look like you're riding the crest of a wave at the moment and things look pretty good over at Ryanair. So congratulations on first blush on the numbers. I haven't had a deep enough look to criticise bits and bobs and I always <laughs> like to go in uh, and be even handed. But look, things look quite good at the moment. Yeah, I mean, we had a strong year last year. We, we, we bounced back quite well. Uh, Q1 was obviously impacted by uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, which impacted uh, Easter badly. But thereafter, people really wanted to travel in numbers, 74% increase in traffic, as you said, to just under 169 million customers, and fares uh, up 10% on pre-COVID levels. And importantly, we, we've grown market shares all across Europe. You know, if you look at the likes of uh, Ireland, for example, uh, we're just under 60% market share. Italy, we've grown 13 points to 40% market share and I think there's room to grow another four or five points in that market particularly as it gets consolidated uh, by Lufthansa over the next uh, couple of years and um, we, we've grown really well in, in Poland where we've 36% market share well ahead of lot and that 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 I could keep going all across the map of Europe at this point in time uh, sorry. I was just going to say you've got all these uh, brand new uh, planes on order, and Mike's been talking about you know, the costs he's had to swallow to to uh, to t- take those on boards with Boeing as well. You've got enormous growth ideas. I think is it 300 million by Correct, yeah. 2030, which is going to be a stretch as well. Yeah, 2030. It's, it's going to be a, a tough target to get to that kind of growth. But you know, you're as you say, you're you're, you're taking the Ryanair model and trying to expand it quite aggressively from here. What's the biggest risk? Well, I mean, the biggest advantage, I suppose, we have before we talk about the biggest risk is the cost base uh, within Ryanair. You know, we've got a significant advantage over absolutely everybody else. We've got a really strong balance sheet, just upgraded to Triple B Plus last week by by S&P, finished uh, the year with with a net cash position, although that was flattered by uh, the the CapEx timing uh, from, from Boeing. Uh, the biggest risk is that I suppose it's the, the aviation industry. Something always goes wrong every few years, but because we have the balance sheet, because we have the cost base that we have, we'll be able to weather whatever storms come just, our uh, way. Just, just on the last point, I was disappointed. You talk about the aviation industry. I was disappointed. Normally in Mike's uh, kind of statements, there's criticising someone about gold-plated Taj Mahals or something, or the CAA or the the, the Dublin Authority. Well, I, I couldn't find one in this. What, are you guys mellowing or something? No, no. I mean, we're, we're, we're very perplexed at the, the 57 days of uh, ATC strikes that we've seen in, in France this year. Uh, we've collected a, a million signatures which we'll be delivering to the EU in the, in the next number of days in relation to that. Uh, we, we would very much like to see the same kind of situation as we have with Italy and with Greece where overflights during strikes are protected uh, by legislation. Um, that, that's perplexing us and we've had to invest very heavily in resilience this summer. Uh, highest ever crewing ratios. Uh, we've doubled the size of operations control centres that people can continue to fly and get to where they want to go on time. So is that the reason why operating costs are up 75 
5% because the number is a, a step up of the 5.27 billion prior year to, to 9.2 billion. Is that all down to the anomalies that you're seeing around well, the Well, operating phase? costs were up last year because our fuel bill was up 113%. If you look at it on a per passenger basis, we were back to pre-COVID levels of 31 euro, which is some 140% lower, for example, than, than EasyJet, about 80% lower than Wiz. Um, so we've got a huge cost uh, advantage, and that advantage is only going to continue for the next decade, as, as Steve rightly said. We're locking in 300 uh, competitively priced game changers, which will enable us to grow to 300 million passengers at a significantly lower cost base than any other airline in Europe. The other number that jumps out to me in the numbers today, 85% uh, hedged at $89 per barrel. The price is more in the 70s range. Are you hedged too high at this point? Was it the, the wrong contract to be taking on? Well, I mean, we, we don't bet on oil. Uh, we, we, we hedge for certainty. Uh, we were hedged last year at about $64 uh, a barrel. Uh, we're, we're locked in at 89 this year, and we are starting to lock in next year at about 77 So we have about a billion extra on our fuel bill compared to the, the prior year. Uh, we're, however, cautiously optimistic that we'll cover that and then grow profits uh, modestly on, on a year-on-year -year basis. Can we just look out over the horizon at the travel market? Because, I mean, we've come off this COVID era. People still want to travel. They're protecting their yeah. summer plans. They're protecting their, their travel ambitions. How does that change in coming years? Have you got any visibility on the horizon as to just what those consumer behaviours look like beyond the initial phase? Well, I think, you know, this year we're not back to pre-COVID capacity. Um, European short haul is probably somewhere between 90-95% of pre-COVID capacity. At the same time, passengers, as you said, customers want to travel in numbers. I think we've had a systemic change in capacity for some years to come. Uh, a lot of airlines either you know, went out of business or they downsized uh, during COVID. Their balance sheets are not strong, so they're being very disciplined in how they uh, put, put capacity into the market. The OEMs are struggling in, in getting aircraft out fast enough uh, to meet the demand. The leasing companies are short of aircraft as well, having lost 500 aircraft. Uh, in, into Russia as a result of the, the sanctions. Um, so I think you know, you're going to see capacity constraints for some period of time to come. I think people have made it very clear that travel is very high on their list of things that they, that they want to do. Um, so I think demand will remain strong and that's you know, one of the reasons why we were very confident to place a 300 aircraft order uh, and to project growth out to 300 million by FY34 uh, two weeks ago in Washington DC. In terms of um, how you grow the shareholder base as well, um, when are you going to start paying dividends of some... I mean, you don't pay a divvy at the moment, do you? No, we don't pay a dividend. Um, I mean, look, where, you, you've, you had a good year to date, the shares are up 29%, but you're still not quite back to where you were at the peaks of last year as well. Um, sooner or later, the shareholders are going to want... The long-term shareholder, Bailey Gifford, I think I was reading about as well, a long-term shareholder, and they, they like your company, but when are you going to start giving them a divvy? Yeah, we've got a lot of long-term shareholders who've been with us, some of them since the IPO in 1997. Uh, the objective this year, you know, we've got one and a half billion of debt that we want to pay down. We paid off 850 million bonds in, in March. Uh, we've got another 750 million that we want to pay off in August of this year. Then we've got our peak capex under the, the game changers, the Boeing A200s, uh, between 2.6 and 2.7 billion in the current year. So that's kind of the uh, the one-two uh, priorities. And when we get beyond that, you know, and we, we hope to retain a modestly uh, net cash, net debt position and a very high liquidity in the business. Once we get beyond that, then we'll obviously look and see uh, what, what we do with our shareholders. Yeah, but but the priorities... family needs to pay for as well. And he's, what, number five, is he? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 we look at the shareholders when we get there. They haven't been found, uh, you know, haven't found us wanting in the past. Right. Uh, but the, the key thing is that, you know, debt first, CapEx, and then we'll see where we go. What do you need to do to get the shares above that 
kind of longer term range. I mean, I'm looking at the five-year chart now, and you tend to top out at around about 18 euros as well. What can you do to get it above? Again, I, I would yeah, point well, I you mean, to, Steve, back you, to share. You, you, you know better than me. I mean, the market will do what the market will do. It's a volatile yeah. place at the moment. But we're delivering strong shares. We're mm -hmm. delivering growth uh, at, at low costs uh, in, into this market. We're, we're growing strongly. And, you know, at some stage, uh, the market will decide if we, if, we, if we need a re-rating or not. But that's for the market to decide, not for me. We can just deliver the results. As we talk about your growth, the market itself is changing. This is in the release today that you expect some sort of consolidation over the next couple of years. Yeah, I think that's inevitable. Where, where would that come from in terms of the, the consolidation? Some of the smaller, low-cost carriers as well or across the well, market? Well, it's already started. Carriers? You know, if, if Norwegian are, are half the size they were. But if, if you were to look at into Italy, 40% um, has been consolidated uh, from Ita, the former Alitalia, uh, into Lufthansa with a view to getting to 100%. TAP in, in Portugal is up for sale. Uh, inevitably, some capacity will come out on the back of that. Uh, and there's more of this to go. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see two uh, of, of the other low-cost carriers in Europe being consolidated in the next couple of years. Uh, I think that's inevitable as well, that you're going to see more of that come together and we'll move more like the US model, where there's four or five large carriers uh, effectively uh, flying 80% of the traffic around yeah, Europe. You don't have in the States these ludicrous legacy flag carriers who are inefficient. I know, like, I mean, I'm not trying to blow wind, say, run it, but your cost base is, as you say, it's, it's unarguable your cost base yeah. compared with the, the ex-flag carriers. We're, we're, we're a country Why do we now. still have the flag carriers in the 21st century? Is there something intrinsically wrong with the EU, which is basically supposed to be about getting rid of these barriers and getting rid of these legacy industries? Yeah, well, you probably saw there was a ruling out in the past week in relation to the state aid, for example, that Lufthansa and uh, SAS got. Uh, during COVID, which was deemed to have been illegal state aid. Well, to keep them um, alive, basically. Which, which, which kept them alive, and I suppose that's one of the reasons why some of these carriers are still around, SAS uh, in Chapter 11 mm -hmm. at this point in time. But we have seen a systemic change in capacity. I think we will be left with some of the historic large flag carriers there, Francis, the KLMs, the, the Lufthansa's, but ultimately uh, short haul and point to point yeah. uh, will be something that Ryanair will be the key player on. As we're pondering the future, I want to ask you about sustainable fuels. I mean, we've been seeing this huge order that's been placed to bet on future yeah. of aircraft, but what does technology do in the mix here? Because surely we could see some big changes over the next 10 years in terms of the mix of energy that the aviation industry uses. Yeah, well, I think, the, as you said, sustainable aviation fuels or SAFs are going to play a huge role in what we do. And we've set an ambitious target. I think we've got the most ambitious target of any airline uh, in Europe where we want to have an uplift of about 12.5% of our fuel in SAFs. Uh, by 2030, what time is that? Uh, 12 and a half percent. Quite a lot, is it? If you consider that you know only one percent of the the world's requirements are, are actually being refined in SAF at the moment, uh, it's going to take the fuel companies some time to get there, and that's why we've been signing MOUs with the likes of Shell, recently with Repsol in Spain, OMV in Central and Eastern Europe, and Neste in Amsterdam. So you know we believe we we'll get there, but equally. The leap engines on the, the, the MAX aircraft that we're buying, you know, the 300 aircraft, are 20% 20, 20 uh, less fuel burn than the NGs that they'll be replacing. The game changers that are coming in, we have another one coming in today, uh, are 16% more fuel efficient. And that technology uh, on the leap engines, when the regulators so allow, can fly up to 100% uh, SAF. Uh, on those aircraft. So inevitably, you know, we, we, we believe that there's a good path here to reducing carbon. Yes, there may be investments uh, and uh, developments in things like hydrogen or electricity, but I don't think it's happening in the next 10 years. I don't think it's happening in the next 20 years. Uh, there, there's a lot to go on that before it'll be commercially viable. 
It's the right thing to do to move in that direction, but what do the numbers look like in terms of what some of the sustainable fuels could cost versus traditional Yeah, uh, today fuel, they're, they're, they're very expensive. Right, you, know, yeah. um, you know, probably three times what you would pay for jet fuel today. But I believe that as, as we so move so forward... Today you wouldn't actually use it to that well, extent. Well, we do. I mean, we're picking it up in, uh, in Amsterdam, but the government in Furnas over there have given a subsidy. We're picking up some uh, in, in the UK, again, where, where there's a subsidy in relation to that. And I think governments need to be on the front foot and, and provide more incentives to airlines and to the fuel companies uh, to pick up staff. But I believe that as we start to get out and start hitting the mandates under Fit for 55 and, and the new uh, UK mandates, that you're going to see the fuel companies, because it's on them to hit the targets, you're going to see more and investment in the production of SAF and that's why we've been signing MOUs with the various fuel companies because that then allows them to go back to their investment committee, make the case, make the investments and as capacity you know, increases as is always the case then the price comes down. Yeah and I presume all those passenger tax increases are going to be used to, uh, to, to invest more for, in research into SAFs and what have you. We've been told so but uh, <laughs> I have yet to see that on UK APD or others. Tongue firmly yeah. in cheek. Neil really good to see you. Um, to see thank you, you for joining us. Uh, I do Pleasure. appreciate it. We had a lovely long chat. So Neil Sorhan who's the CFO of Ryanair. Just tell you what's coming up on this show. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy preparing to sit down one-on-one to thrash out disagreements on the debt ceiling, plus the podcast. Well, for more on our G7 coverage, as well as the latest corporate earnings here in Europe, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. It was a slightly weaker finish stateside for U.S. markets, and you can see uh, just modestly downbeat on the action for the Dow through to the S&P. This on the back of what was a fairly decent trading week. We actually had gains across the board, 1.6 plus on the S&P for the trading week. The Nasdaq right out in front, and we saw that uh, with a lot of those big FANG stocks scooped up early in the week, 3% higher for the trading week. FANG stocks themselves over the week bouncing almost 5%. So a fairly terrific rebound for some of these names on the market. But overarching issues at this point, debt ceiling and after some confidence early last week that there would be some progress in negotiations. Now over the weekend, uh, some criticism as to where we're at. Further conversation scheduled for later on today. But the market just uh, becoming a little bit more nervous around that story. So that is somewhat of a scene setter for this week. And of course, the other big issue, Fed policy. Where are we going from here when it comes to US interest rates? In terms of uh, what we've got elsewhere, let's just move on and take a look at uh, some of the other trades across the board on the yields. Four and a quarter percent where we're travelling up the short end on the two-year versus 3.65 on the 10-year. 
the market picking up on clues. We've had a fairly dovish Jay Powell suggesting they may slow the rate of increases. And that's not exactly a pivot, though, from here. Don't forget, uh, still in the market positioning, we do have rate cuts priced in for later this year. So somewhat at odds with a, a slowing narrative on, on rates from the, the Fed at this point. Let's take a look at the dollar trade because the dollar this morning, as you can see, is uh, traveling a little bit weaker versus the Japanese yen, but across versus currencies on this side of the world too. Euro is perched higher, so this dovish pile and the debt ceiling issues just causing a somewhat of a switch away from dollar trades. Sterling also tracking a little bit firmer, 124 and a half early on. Uh, let's look at uh, what we've got on markets, as you can see across on uh, oil. WTI is traveling at $71, so down by about eight tenths of a percent this morning. Brent uh, holding on to the 75 handle, but it is also a weaker trade at this stage. The Asian market in session. Uh, this is the Monday trade. Japanese still stocks still going for it. 31,000 plus is what we've seen. Uh, quick escalation in recent weeks through 30,000, now through 31,000. Eight tenths higher. The earnings story seems to have been a fairly significant trigger for the bounce we've seen of late. Hong Kong stocks are 1.5% in the green. The wash up from the weekend somewhat muted across on the China market. All sorts of trade tensions and geopolitics around whether just to rely on China at this point, uh, given the lessons that have been learned from the war in Ukraine around energy. So uh, the Shanghai market two tenths higher at this point, slightly weaker on Australia. The uh, European markets, this is the early action. Uh, last week, just to wrap up uh, how we traded, we were a little bit stronger for the course of the week on the benchmark. Uh, the stock of 600 up by seven-tenths of a percent, outpaced by individual markets, in particular Germany. One of the stronger ones, up two and a quarter percent. This morning, you can see green arrows, but the direction is very slim at this point. And uh, let's just take a look at those U.S. futures. You can see it is a bit of a, a choppy old picture before the start. We've got a, a flash of red on the Dow there, but just 10 points lower and slightly up for the Nasdaq, 20 odd points. So we're not getting any clear signals really at this stage. As Karen said, US President Joe Biden says debt ceiling talks with the House Speaker Kevin McCarthy went well with both sides preparing to meet again today. Biden and McCarthy spoke on the phone over the weekend as the president returned from the G7 summit in Japan. Mr. Biden and congressional leaders are expected to agree a deal on either suspending or raising the debt ceiling ahead of a June 1st deadline. Biden had urged congressional leaders to, quote, move their extreme positions to come to an agreement. Speaking in Hiroshima on Sunday, he said a compromise was necessary. We agreed the only way to move forward was in a bipartisan agreement. <clears throat> and we've, I've done my part. We put forward a proposal to cut spending by more than a trillion dollars. On top of the nearly three trillion dollars in deficit reduction that I previously proposed through the combination of spending cuts and new revenues. Now it's time for the other side to move their, from their extreme positions because much of what they've already proposed is simply, uh, quite frankly, unacceptable. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urged leaders to agree a deal ahead of the deadline. I indicated um, in my last letter to Congress that we expect um, to be unable to pay all of our bills in early June and possibly as soon as June 1st. And um, I will continue to update Congress, but I certainly haven't changed my assessment. So I think that that's a, a, a hard right. deadline. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.